All right. So, we all good? I think so. I think we're pretty good. Yeah. Well, let's do it, boys. It's episode 38. All right. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 38 of the Laminate Money Podcast. If you are new here, welcome. 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 Uh, welcome. With me, usual suspects, uh, Jay Radke over here, and Dan. How was Maine? Fantastic. Lots it was of biking? Uh, no biking on this trip, actually. First, first, first time for me out on the East Coast, though. I've been to Vermont before for a period of about 16 hours. So I was there for a very short period of time. But Maine was great. Nice. Yeah. It has a lot of like uh, the the um, nature, the trees, all that stuff reminds me, reminded me of Minnesota, like some mm-hmm. of what you'll see in Minnesota. But then just having the coast there, it's like you get this coastal breeze and yeah. you smell the ocean. So, so it, was, it was beautiful. It was what I expected and not what I expected. I think what everybody wants to know is, did you have lobster? Yeah, I was fresh oh, the same thing. Oh, we had we had fresh lobster. Nice. Um, we had uh, lobster rolls is what we had. Though. Okay, so which is basically just a like a fresh, very light, fluffy bun with lobster mixed in a mayo mix and green onions on top. Boom! Dan's keeping there the lobster go. economy afloat. There Excellent. we go. Well, while you were gone, Dan, the stock market officially hit a bull market. I heard that on yeah. Thursday. Thursday yeah. we left. We left. Uh, well, we we entered. Bear market, uh, excuse me, bull market territory. Yes. So from August, what would the the stat here is October, I think October of last year to now. So that was about an eight month period to get here. But hey, yeah. So maybe you should be gone more often. And <laughs> yeah, right? I'm fine with that. That's right. Send me on vacation. The VIX, <laughs> the VIX is way down too. The volatility yes. is like 15, 13. Yes. It's very low. I did notice that. So today on the show, uh, we're going to be talking about being average, which I'm I'm really excited to talk about. Uh, we're going to be obviously talking about the bull market and really why the bull market happened. And we're going to be talking about houses and automation and problem solving. That was so, an interesting one. I'm excited to talk about the problem solving. I am. I'm as well. Me three. Layer by layer, day by day, the world, our markets, and your life unfolds. Welcome to the Laminate Money Podcast, a show dedicated to exploring our world the financial markets, and scaling your financial life. Tom Statham, Jacob Radke, Dan Schuster, and Noah Jezdal work for Fiel Capital, and all opinions expressed by Tom, Jacob, Dan, Noah, or any podcast guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Fiel Capital. So let's start with the weekend reads here. So um, I'm just going to read verbatim here. A hallmark of success is understanding what you are average at, being okay with that, and stacking all your chips on what you are good at. Hmm. Isn't that pretty smart? Yeah. I'm just tooting my own horn here. I wrote that. (laughs) (laughs) That's a pretty smart, it was an intelligent thing to write though, honestly. It goes to that idea of like, there's probably 20% of what you do, and I know we've been been recently, we we read that book, 10X, uh, you know, but it's like 20% of what you do is probably what you're actually really, really good at. The other 80% is so-so. You're average or below average, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, so the more you can focus on the 20% that you're extremely good at, the more you'll just compound success right there. Stack it's, all your chips on that. Exactly. So in this last last weekend reads, which if you guys aren't subscribed, uh, you know, subscribe, subscribe away. Yeah, p- please do so. We will, we will uh, put in our show notes here. I don't think Michael Jordan in the 90s was competing on like cooking shows. Was he? 
I don't know. I didn't live in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, Jacob's one of those like weird people that is, you know, not has never experienced weird or never people. never will, right? <laughs> but like Michael Jordan in the 90s was solely focused mm-hmm. on winning championships. Mm-hmm. He was like, I don't cook, I don't do anything. The only thing I want to do is become a ridiculously good basketball player and become the best. Yep. So he was being totally fine. So what so what we just said is like he understood what he was doing. He understood the vision of his life, you know, becoming a world champion and then becoming a back or like a multiple world champion. Yep. So he wasn't really interested in becoming a world-class chef. Yep. Leave that to Martha Stewart. Yeah. Yep. Totally. Totally. There's an interesting, uh, <laughs> there's a, uh, I was just talking to my brother about this. There's an Arnold Schwarzenegger, like three-part documentary on Netflix right now. Ooh. Super interesting. And how they structured this documentary, and this all ties in, I promise this isn't random, is they structured the, the documentary in three parts. The first part is his, uh, his career as a bodybuilder. Episode two is his career as an actor. Episode three is his career as politics. And that is the exact approach that Schwarzenegger took. Is He, he basically completely, he stacked all his chips on bodybuilding when he was in his 20s. He just destroyed the bodybuilding field. Yeah. No one could compete. And then he said, well, that was great. I'm really good at that. I actually think I'm a pretty good actor too. Let's find out if I can do that well. And then he <laughs> stacked all his chips on acting, just dominated in the acting world and to, you know, films Terminator and all that stuff and they all blow up. And um, So anyways, uh, another perfect example though, right alongside someone like Michael Jordan. Totally. I think what's um, where this came from too is when I was writing this, um, you know, you read on the internet and like you just, you, you, I think a mistake people make is they, they think they need to be good at all things. Like you read it on the internet and you're like, okay, you need to be a good investor. You need to be good at your job. You need to be a good parent. You need to be a good X, Y, Z, whatever it is. Like you just, whenever you're on the internet, like you are reading and consuming. And, and I think you get the feeling that like you need to be great at everything, but According to Albert Einstein, by definition, you cannot be good at everything. By definition, it is not possible for everyone to be above average. So I think the the weird thing about this is like you want to be average in some things and be okay in your mind being okay being average. For me in particular, like I'm very okay with my health right now. I wouldn't say I'm healthy, but I'm not like unhealthy. I would say I'm very average. Like I have an average physique. My, my ability to like run a mile, I'm extremely average and I'm okay with that because I understand the cost of being extremely fit would mean I don't get to spend as much time mm-hmm. with my kids and I'm not willing to make that sacrifice. So I'm okay being average in that area, knowing that the, you know, the, the flip side of that transaction is more time with my kids, a better parent. And I believe that will yield more results for me down the road. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think like choosing your areas of average is so important. Um, we, again, this is framed mostly on like, you need to be, most people frame this as you need to be good. Like, you know, focus on what you're really good at, but I think an almost easier way to look at this is no, what are you like? What do you need to be average in? And like be very average in those areas. Mm-hmm. Does this make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And I think like part, part of the way that this has changed in my own mind over the last uh, even two months, I would call it, is, is I don't feel like what I'm telling myself to do is, you know, we're saying stack all the chips on what you're really good at. Well, yes, stack the chips on what you're really good at, 
but that doesn't necessarily also mean like you need to just cut out everything else that you're average at, but it's recognizing that you are average at some things and that's okay. And maybe you can maybe you can focus 80% of your time on the things that you are really good at and then only 20% or 30% or 10% or whatever it is, a sliver of your time is just doing the things you're average at and being okay with that too. Whether that's average by necessity because you need to mow your lawn and your lawn actually doesn't look that great, but it has to get mowed. So you're average at mowing. Yeah. Um, or maybe it's like biking. I love to bike. I love to bike, but I'm honestly extremely average at it, but I still invest time in it. I'm just kind of okay with it being average though. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think it's just like understanding the cost of being yes. excellent at something. And um, an area where you do not want to be average, and again, this was this is you know we're obviously talking about this, we're about to talk about this. This was in the weekend reads. Is and I'm I feel so strongly about this is do not be average with your money. Mm-hmm. And here's why, right? And here's why. So according to a recent uh, CNBC survey, they found that seventy percent of Americans feel stressed financially, or put another way, the very much so the average American is stressed. So you put a thousand people in a room, probably over 700 of them are going to be stressed with their money. And it's going to be different, right? Mm-hmm. Like the average financial life in our country is not something to strive for. No. Yeah, absolutely not. Here's the irony in all of this. Most people listening to this have an average financial life. <laughs> right. Like most people you know, by definition, have a financial life, but I think, or an average financial life. I think what's tricky about this and what we're saying is like, and we're going to talk about habits in a second, but, um, you know, doing the reps that lead to above average financial lives, like that is what to focus on Mm -hmm. when you Mm -hmm. have an average financial life Mm -hmm. right now. And I think if I could throw, throw this in there too, it's like, I think an average financial life probably looks something like this. Average means you you probably have some credit card debt. Mm-hmm. It's maybe not excessive, but you maybe have, let's call it $3,000. You have $3,000 of credit card debt that's not paid off at the end of every month. You have student loans or auto loans, but you're only making minimum payments. You're, you're just kind of doing the, the, the simple thing. You have a 401k, but you're putting like 3% towards it and your company puts two. So your total savings rate is 5%, something like that. So it's like you're doing things to manage some of the, 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 the financial life itself, but yeah, you're not necessarily taking those steps that are actually going to, um, accelerate how quickly your financial life improves. Mm-hmm. So I don't know anything else on the average side. I, I felt like giving context here for what does average look like? Totally. I think if you're a 35 year old, um, I've got a LinkedIn post coming out, I don't know, in the next couple of weeks on this, like just take a second and just look at what the average 55 year old self or 55 year old in our country is. Mm-hmm. You can go to Fidelity, you can go to Vanguard. Uh, a lot of these big shops put the the average balances and the median balances, which is, you know, more, probably more accurate. accurate. Yep. And just know that like that will be you. Like that won't be exactly you, but, you know, assuming the law of averages is true and you are an average person today, you will probably be average in, you know, 20 years and just take a peek at what that looks like. And if the thought of having, you know, $250,000 when you're 55 and you're 401k and the fact that, you know, that could maybe spend, you know, maybe 12,000 a year, just simple math here, 4%. Like if that, if you're like, nah, I'm good. That doesn't like, 
I don't like that sounds bad. Then you got to do something different. Yep. <laughs> you got to right. strive yep. for the above average life. And financially, because of what we just laid out, being above average in your financial life is not really that hard. You just have to take, if you take a couple extra steps, you will be at above average mm-hmm. because there's a lot of people that don't take any steps. Yes. And that's yep. how they end up at 55. So like, if you don't want to be the 55 year old with, you know, a low 401k balance or whatever, you know, just take some steps early on and help yourself out. Totally. Yep. yep. Totally. And I think what's hard about this and the reason why people have average financial lives or the average isn't that great and subsequently people are really dependent on social security, i.e. the government, is because life happens, right? Like they were saving. Mm -hmm. Um, They were a 35-year-old family. They were doing a good job saving, but then they had a huge medical emergency from a pregnancy. Like that stuff happens. So how you need to do this is like, you need to, you know, shoot to be above average, knowing that, you know, things will happen to you that, you know, where you will take two steps backwards, right? Yeah. And um, you just need to, you need to have those above average times when you, the, those really focused times be more potent than the yep. times where you get set back because it is completely unrealistic to think that your financial life will always be on this high trajectory. Like mm-hmm. there will be times when, you will make stupid decisions, right? Like yep. You will do something dumb. And I have, made, I have made a lot of dumb financial decisions personally, right? Yep. And like those things will happen. Like you will make a bad decision. Somebody will make a bad decision for you. The market, the economy will make a bad decision. The government will make a bad decision for you. Um, but you need to be able to bounce back. And that resiliency, that bouncing back, that is the hallmark of the leading indicator of an above average financial life. Yes. And that's where you get to the point where you you become indestructible. Yes. And that is a game of consistency and, and simplicity too in yeah. how you set this up. But consistency, it's like that is the key. You yes. want to know what would be fantastic? Like if in the United States, an above average financial life was incredibly hard to achieve. Mm-hmm. Because you know what that means? That means the average financial life is actually taking the right steps and getting somewhere meaningful yeah. Yeah. financially. Right. Totally. If it's hard to get to be above average, like bodybuilding, that right. just means that, you know, the average has done the right thing. Totally. Totally. And this gets back to, you know, the name of our podcast, Laminate Money. Like, what is Laminate Money? What does this all mean? Well, it means that layer by layer by layer, every week, every time you're doing something with your money, you're adding another layer of hopefully strength, right? Um, it's like, you know, the, the lamination, you can laminate a tree. That's how a tree grows is it just grows ring after ring after ring after ring year over year over year. Then all of a sudden 30 years goes by and you have this tree that's, you know, really, really strong and stable and, and moving and produces, you know, it can produce other trees. Right. Um, but that is like, that is what this is all about. Dan, that's what you said. And that's really what this podcast is. So again, going back to Michael Jordan here, right? Like he was, he was not doing, he like wasn't cooking his own meals or he would cook some, right? But like by and large, like he had people helping him out in that area so that he could focus on, you know, what was really important to him. So we just said, you know, really don't be average with your money. Like you do not want that because the average is bad and 70% of Americans are stressed. So what do you do about that? Well, you have to choose what to be average in, right? Um, so maybe this is less time on TikTok and more time, you know, reading Apple News, right? You're like, mm-hmm. well, Apple News, blah, 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 whatever. It's like, no, you'll read good stuff there. 
like it'll show you Barron's Wall Street Journal. It could be as some, something as stupid as that, right? Mm-hmm. We're just like, you know, shifting a little bit of your behavior, shifting some of your habits uh, towards more productive things for you. Wow. Nothing to add to Silence. that. I think that just needs to let that sit and simmer. All right. Well, that was perfect. I don't know about perfect, but... <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is ever perfect. Nothing time. is ever, yeah. Done is better than perfect. Uh, but, um, all right. So here's why the stock market left... Actually, no. Not well, here's, why, here's, here's why. Here's a reason. Here's a reason. Okay. So October of 2022, that was the low point of the market. Everyone was just absolutely hating everything. Freaking out, right? So we were, yeah, people were freaking out in October. It was bad, right? So uh, we had arguably one of the fastest bull markets ever between June and August of last year pretty much sold it all away in September, bottomed in October. Yep. And then in 2020 or November of 2022, this little thing called ChatGPT was announced. And that, I believe, was really one of the major sparks to what just happened in the stock market. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's two things. That's one of them. Yep. The other one is that everybody thought that the economy was hitting a recession. For the prior 12 months. And here we are still saying, oh no, that baby's coming. It's coming six months from now. It'll, it'll be here. And we'll talk about this too, the next thing. But Goldman Sachs released this article on AI and how it could boost stocks. And in this, they have this chart, which I thought was oh, maybe a little bit crazy in my head. Because if you look really closely at it, and it's linked in the show notes, July of 2023, they have a price target for like 4,600. That's 200 points in like less than a month. Yeah, it's crazy. And yeah. I'm like, I, you know, it's out there. This is, is way out there, that is for sure. But it is just insane how bullish people are, yet they're incredibly bearish. Like yeah. if you actually look at the numbers of surveyed people, like it's still 60% are bearish versus bullish. Yeah, they're clo- those bearish people are closing their shorts and the bullish people are going long. And this is how you get this culmination of, of a you know, stock market that's the NASDAQ's up 30%. That's how it happens. Um, but there was, this, there was this very interesting part in here and it was talking about innovation. And Goldman Sachs projects that AI adoption could have a almost 1.5% annual productivity boost in the United States. And... What they said about this is like the light bulb, when that came out, the, all of the S&P 500 gains came post the light bulb. Like the productivity, when, when that actually came out, everything came after that. Like it wasn't leading up to it. Dot-com bubble, like the productivity was in the 90s, late, early, late 90s into 2000. And that's when you saw the 25% annual gains in the, the S&P 500. And so it's like comparing and trusting, like, where is AI going to land in this? Like, productivity doesn't always mean that today we're going to get gains mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the market. It could be after, it could be before, it could be, con- you know, concurrent, con- coinciding. Uh, but I just thought that was really interesting that the 1.5% in productivity, that's massive when you yeah. think of an economic scale. I wonder what the productivity gains were, like, with, uh, I mean, and this is an extreme example, but you compare it to the light bulb because you brought the light bulb up. And I know Goldman Sachs talks about that. Yeah. I don't think they put the numbers in there, but I mean, yeah, 1.5%. I mean, what's the impact of that on GDP itself? 
Well, I, I've uh, seen it's huge. Yeah, I've seen uh, GDP estimates that were like four to five, six percent annual increases, seven percent. I don't know. Huge. They're up there. Huge. Yeah. And these like these numbers we're talking about are really hard to fathom. How big? Like a one point five percent on a you know a GDP in the as, as big as the United States. Mm-hmm. And the GDP, of course, is um, the large part of it is just like what people buy buy, and what people make and produce and sell, whether that's a goods or service, right? And um, so, yeah, this is, this, is, this is an absolute big deal. And I think it's no, you know, really no coincidence. And we've, again, we've talked about AI a lot since, uh, since November of last year. But the, uh, again, the reason being is this is really, really, really important. Um, when you think about big companies, right? Like they're producing data all over the place. They're constantly producing data. If you think about Coca-Cola, like think about how many cans of Coke have been sold just in the last 20 minutes around the world. Uh, I, I don't know, like tens of thousands. I mean, there's a lot. Probably way more than that. And every one of those is a data point. And, uh, you know, so we obviously, they have the capacity to store that data on the cloud. They have there are companies today that, of course, can help Coca-Cola figure out market trends from that data. But AI is really going to be a huge uh, step forward in the ability to do business and to be smarter with business. Yep. Um, and AI doesn't take a lunch break. Right. Yeah, because right. here, t- here today, you know, Coca-Cola executives or planners or whatever, they have to look at the data that's been you know, given to them, the analytics of the data that they've, they've streamed it into the cloud and into a data analytics firm like Snowflake or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then Snowflake gives it back to them and says like, here's all the stuff that you're, that we see. Right. And then yep. some executive has to look at it and say, oh, okay, we should sell more Diet Coke in Nevada because more Nevadans drink Diet Coke than Alabamans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, AI will take that information and because it's generative and it'll say instantly on you know, Coca-Cola's productivity, it'll say, oh, I'll just change this for Coca-Cola and you don't need an executive to do it anymore. You don't have the human time element of it. That executive can now focus its t- like their time on something else. Yeah. Like that's the power is now you have two executives per one or 10 executives per one. Mm-hmm. And that's where this productivity ties into the real economy. Yes. And I thought this, this, uh, right, this is right in the first paragraph where They said the leap in NVIDIA's outlook was a galvanizing development for investors who are assessing how much influence generative AI will have on revenue growth and profitability. I thought that galvanizing development for investors, uh, that that was, uh, I I think people were questioning ourselves as well. We were questioning, you know, what is this? Is this real? And then NVIDIA was like, no, no, no. It's real. This is like, this is very real. So much like we're 53% above our consensus. For a quarter. Yeah. Yeah. A single quarter. Yeah. Three months. Yeah. Three months. Which is just in, insane. And this is all on text-based artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Like, this isn't really factoring in, like, the, the image-based or voice-based or uh, video-based. Video. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, this is pretty much just people typing into a bar and it spitting on an output. Yeah. One of my LinkedIn uh, guys that I follow, he had a poll this morning on how often people in his audience were using AI. And so his audience, my guess, would be successful white-collar workers. That's, that's who I would uh, think his audience is, and maybe even global. But the vast majority of those people 
um, we're using it daily and weekly. Yeah, I mean, I'm daily. Yeah, same with me. Mm-hmm. Probably weekly. Yeah. So it's like people are already using it all the time. It's just, yeah. oh, it's yeah. so so interesting. And I think that's what's interesting here about uh, about AI itself too. And one of the reasons we've talked about it as much as we have is, you know, what's interesting is uh, as we have these conversations, and I'm saying this directly to the listeners, as we have these conversations, mm-hmm. like these are like, we are also exploring artificial intelligence itself, AI, its use cases. The conversation for ourselves is an exploration of how will this be used? And of all the conversations that our team has had in the last 12 months about new trends, new tech, new something, this is the one I would say that has the most, it, 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 it doesn't seem like a flash in the pan thing, which I know we've said that yeah. before. This doesn't seem like a flash in the pan. There are real long-term implications to how AI can be used where the productivity gains could actually be massive. It could be one and a half percent. And now for the next 200 years, we're building off of, <laughs> right? All the incremental productivity gains are going to be built off of that one, one and a half percent. Mm-hmm. And AI, similar to laminate money, becomes a layer in basically technological innovation for the next 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, you know, and things, things will, of course, change. Sorry about that. Um, things will, of course, change. But it seems to, there's, there are long-term this is a long-term deal. Totally. This is very much so a long-term deal. So we're going to rewind the clock here for a second and move on. Uh, we're still going to be talking about AI here. Um, but let's talk about where the world was at the end of last year. So every December, at the end of November and December, there are, um, I think there's like 70 to 90 Wall Street firms that all yeah. post their year-ahead outlooks. Everyone just talks about what they think the future holds. Everyone knows that they are almost a complete waste of time, but everyone also reads them, ourselves included. Yep. And we do a bunch of year ahead stuff with our clients. We do a bunch of year ahead work internally just as a team. I don't know. It's one of those things where it's like, we know we have no clue what the future holds, but at the same time, we are just so drawn to the future. Um, and I think that's because everyone on Wall Street, uh, the, the clients, we're all investors. Like, by, yep. like that's what investing is. Like you're investing in something, in, you know, cash flows in the future or- For the future. Um, I mean, for your future. For, for your future, right? Yeah. Like you can't take investing in future. You can't like <laughs> separate them. Um, so let's take a second and talk about how I would say like, I would say like wrong people were. Yeah. So I said earlier, the NASDAQ is up over 30% and nobody anticipated that. Nobody, everybody was wrong about that. Ourselves included. I remember saying like, oh yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, this is probably isn't going to be a great year. Like, I mean, nothing's really feeling like it's just screaming opportunity right now. And then like a light switch, boom, here we are. And I just, I could, it's, it's so interesting that we're in a bear or a bull market. We're out of the bear market Mm -hmm. into this new bull market. The NASDAQ's up 30% and everybody, the most popular prediction is I'll be prepared for a, struggling first half of the year, you know, followed up by something of a, of a reversion in the, in the back half of the year after a recession. They were all thinking a recession was happening now today. Yeah. It doesn't really feel like that anymore. And now they're saying, oh, the recession's 2024. It's 2024 mm-hmm. now, guys. <laughs> um, and so everything changed like on a dime. And here we are. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, don't think, um, I don't think it's changed. I think reality has changed on a dime. I think we're still seeing so many headlines of like, oh, the stocks are going to drop or, you know, be prepared for a 10% drawdown. Well, you know, 
to that person saying for 10% drawdown, like that's just table stakes. Like the market can drop 10% at any time. For any reason. For any reason, right? Yep. Like that's just, that's just yep. like as an investor, that's just how it works, right? And you know, what, what's tricky and what, what the reason we're talking about this and the reason, you know, for our listeners out there, like all along this year, you know, people have said, we need a breather. We need a breather or the stocks are going to go down. Meanwhile, the NASDAQ's up 30%. So even if the NASDAQ goes down 10%, we're still up 20. And like, if you were constantly listening to these people, it's like, you're just going to miss out. Right. And, um, and I think, you know, this is um, from a BMO Capital Markets, uh, Brian Belsky from, on December 16th. Everybody and their mother, brother, sister, cousin, and uncle is negative on the first half of the year. So we'll come out a little bit different. I think the weakness is probably not going to be as long as everyone thinks. What happens and what happens in the market, we've seen this time and time and time again, is when everything goes to one, when everyone moves to one side of the boat, everyone realizes like, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. We're tipping. Yep. Oh my gosh. Whether you know it or not, like I, I don't fully understand how this works, but there's, you know, when things are, when the consensus is the consensus, that's usually the time to start considering walking across the boat. And then what happens is like everyone who starts walking across the boat, they're like, oh yeah, this is really smart. And then more people walk to the boat and more people, more people. And those first people generate all yep. the returns. Yep. And then it goes way to the other side, right? And so again, this is like, this is just like one of those just market phenomenons that you just have to understand. Yeah. Like it is like cyclicality within can, like what people believe to be true. It's just, it's powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the stock market is just not the economy. Mm -hmm. And like when you think about how recessions and bear markets and bull markets are perce perceived by like the three different things. Like you said it, investing and future can't be separated. The stock market's always looking into the next 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, whatever. Yep. It's always looking forward. So it's going to say, oh, I see the other side. There's not a recession over there. I'm going to invest for that future. Right. And then the economy actually enters it. And then people start getting laid off. So people start to perceive it after the economy has already entered the recession. But by that time, the stock market's looking so far past the recession that it is actually rallied, mm -hmm. you know, but people perceive it as like, oh, we're in a recession today and everything's bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which maybe that's where we're at in this, in this period here is like the recession is like today, but the stock market's looking past that and people are about to feel it in six months. Totally. Like I always, like the thing that I've been thinking about you know, as we've managed assets, like as we've, you know, actually managed our client's portfolio and communicated them where we're going and why, why we're doing the things that we're, we're doing, you know, you just look back over history and like what happens after you just get your clock cleaned in the, the equity markets or just markets in general, it's usually like a pretty good time to invest. Like after you get your mm -hmm. clock clean, like you look at the, uh, the, what happened after the financial crisis. Or after, you know, COVID bottomed, that four-week aggressive uh, bear market we experienced, the market went up really fast. Yep. Yeah. And because people got to the other side of the boat and it was actually tipping over. So a handful of them moved to the other side really yes. fast. And then the yep. rest of them followed afterwards. Yep. Totally. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Totally. To and use I'm, your own analogy. Yeah. 
And I, th- I, I almost feel this goes to Jacob's comment on, uh, you know, maybe we're in the recession and people just don't know it yet or they haven't realized it or they're feeling it now. I, I don't necessarily even think people are feeling it yet. No. And part of that is because, you know, you look and, and in this article as well, uh, which is linked here, um, there's still $1.2 trillion left in household cash deposits. Yeah. So if people are, uh, and listen, this is a small sample size. Again, I was, I was out last week and we were in Maine, but people were in Maine. People were buying expensive seafood. People were taking boat tours and going whale watching and yeah. shopping and buying goods. And I mean, there's consumers still have money that I think even if economically speaking, in the economic terms, we are in recession, people aren't feeling it because they, they're they still flush with cash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and people won't get laid a, off until they're out of that cash. Correct. Because the big companies that are employing them are still selling them goods because they have all this extra cash. Yep. Yeah. Where I, where I probably take a different direction there is to say, I'm still not, I still would not make a prediction on, you know, this cash runs out, let's say, and- and then recession happens and people get laid off and we have a massive recession because there are so many other factors, so many mm-hmm. other variables, like macro scale economy that can change in the next 12 months while people are still spending this down, that 12 months from now, the economy could be in a whole different place and a really good place. And uh, and yeah, these these consumers don't actually ever feel, quote unquote, recession. Totally. So, so then did we ever have one in the first place? Wah, wah. I know, right? <laughs> And the, the 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 easiest way around this all is just to stay diversified, right? Yeah. Um, like these, it's just to stay diversified. You never um, know what's going to happen. You, you never, never, never know. And even if you did know, you would never know how humans respond. Yeah, like exactly. Like even if you had all of the data in the world and you knew what was going to happen, like you don't know how your neighbor's going to respond, right? Like if you, uh, again, you've got, you know, identical families, um, financially speaking, you know, one had a traumatic financial, you know, traumatic experience with her parents when they were eight, the other didn't, they could respond totally different. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. uh, and again, that's why like humans, I mean, that's why this is fun too, right? Um, it's like, you just, humans are so difficult. Like we're yeah. just, we're, we're so difficult. Like we, we do not know how to respond. Another thing on response too, I was thinking about this actually about 10 minutes ago. The reason why there's so many fear-mongering uh, people and headlines out there is because we are just wired to be afraid. Mm-hmm. Like, we are wired to run. We are wired to fight, right? Like, we are wired. Um, and it's a very, like, good thing inside of us, you know, when we're, you know, we're freaked out. Um, but again, like, that, that oftentimes goes against the principles of great investing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep, absolutely. So, it's a great way to... Um, for these media outlets to gather people in, you know, it's like, hey, we need eyeballs, we need clicks. Like, it's 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 a good way to you know garner uh, garner clicks by, you know, really trying to hook people in fear. Um, but again, those really oftentimes go uh, directly against the principles of great yeah. investing. And I think the best way you can actually avoid that, and really part of what our team is trying to do now as well, is it, we want like build build yourself strong. Build yourself courageous. Build yourself bold. Like become a person who is strong enough to not necessarily always. Uh, I'm not even necessarily saying bat, bash the headlines at all times, right? The fear mongering and all that. But it's like build your financial life and your person as as someone who is able to like confront those headlines and say like, this is what people are saying. But I, 
in my experience or what I can do to actually overcome this is XYZ. I can do ABC, which is going to get me to XYZ, even if what is being said to me right now is true. Yeah. Which it may or may not be. And you've got it, you've got to take that all with a grain of salt. But either way, it's like build yourself strong. Get us be, become an indestructible pillar, financially speaking. Totally. Totally. So we're gonna um link to your uh on how you can improve your habits because habits change lives, right? Like you can think that you're going to become great. You're going to, you know, Michael Jordan can like in his mind envision himself, you know, hitting the three at the end of the game. But like in order to do that, to be that competent where you can do something with your eyes closed, you have Mm -hmm. to have great habits. And again, we're going to, um, we're going to link this down in the show notes for, for you to read, but it is really rather interesting. It's pretty short, rather interesting, um, way for the, this gal, her name's Dana Ferris, uh, to improve her habits. And there's really one word that sums up everything in what she's saying, and it's just automat- uh, automation. It's just automating what was causing chaos in her life. And for her, it was her health and her, uh, her, her money. And how she cr- like forcefully created better habits so she could do what you just described, Dan, was she just automated her money and she mm-hmm. automated her health as well. And um, what that looks like for people out there, if you're like, if you just struggle with impulsiveness or if you're like, whoops, I just spent, you know, $500 going out to eat last month. Well, that's a lot of money. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> you can spend $500 a month eating out like no time. Yeah. To Jimmy John's last night and it was like, 34 bucks for my family with like pretty bare bones order. Yeah. Um, okay. So automating your finances. So when you automate your finances, you're like automating your layers within your financial life. And I think the best way for me in my mind, uh, curious to know your guys' thoughts is automating. Like once you earn the income is like before that money can even hit a place where you can easily spend it you know, push that into something where you can't spend it, i.e. 401k brokerage account mm-hmm. or possibly a savings account that's not directly underneath your checking account as your banking relationship, something like that, mm-hmm. or wherever you bank. Mm-hmm. That's probably the easiest way to automate your money. It sounds mm-hmm. so stupid. Yeah. But it's so easy. Yep. Forced lifestyle is really what it is. I mean, that's, Ooh, that's I like how that. I think of it. It's like f- force yourself into a lifestyle that is below your, your, your means of living, for one. And, 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 you know, whoever you are, you're going to be on a different like scale in this journey. Cause maybe you're at the point where you are trying to even get to the point where like the inflows and outflows balance at the end of the month, keep working on that. You will get there. But if you get to the point where there's more coming in now than, than's going out, that's, that's how my wife and I do it is just mm-hmm. forced lifestyle. This is what we're going to live off every month. And, and I do exactly what you said, which is before money ever even hits my checking account, I've already had it separated to go off to the places I wanted to go to. So then whatever lands in my checking account, so well, that's, that's, that's what we have to live off of. So we want to go to Maine. Okay, well, this is what we have to this live off of. This is what we have. It sounds so um, simple, but, the, uh, but it's so profound. And going up to the highest level, Australia is notorious. Uh, no, uh, the, the residents of Australia are wealthy. And one of the reasons why is they don't have a choice. They have to buy equities in their Australian 401k plan. 
Like they don't have a choice. Like they have to put money from their paycheck in. And this experiment's going on, been been going on for I don't know, but probably I mean it's been it's been a long time. And Australians as a like net worth uh, divided by you know people in the country are you know far better off than than most countries, developed countries. And one of the reasons is like they just don't have a choice. So here in America, like we have the choice to mm-hmm. like we have the choice to do this. We just have to like we have to make the choice to automate our money, to automate our habits. And then all of a sudden, like January 2023 happens when the uh, you know the Nasdaq's up like 14% or something in a month. Like, oh wow, this made some pretty good money. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I did. I didn't mm-hmm. miss the boat. I didn't yep. miss the boat. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Don't discount the choice to do it too, because I think, I, particularly here in the United States, if it's like in that in that instance, we do have the choice, and we have to either you're either going to do it or not do it. Um, but there's there's a lot of benefit even just to to making the choice and saying, listen, I'm I'm going to do this. I mean, you will build mental fortitude by making that choice to do that as well. Yeah. Not only does it benefit your finances, but yeah. So right, because the law says that you don't have to contribute to your 401k, mm-hmm. right? But there are plenty of companies out there that enact policies that are far above just the law, right? Oh, and yeah. their employees have to abide by those policies, whether or not it's the baseline law or not. So even if you think like in your own mind, like I don't have to contribute my 401k, but I'm going to make it my personal policy that I am forced to contribute X to yeah. my 401k, Yeah, right? Like it's your personal homestyle policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's part of the, part of the becoming strong, part of building yourself into that indestructible financial pillar you know it's it's people don't have to lift weights at the gym but they do you know not everyone though it's it's few it's it's far and few between um but the ones that do just build immense strength so i think that's part of the way you can do it here as well totally and like these are the steps to becoming above average like it's just it is the like this is this is it right it's like and again the average is everything that we've haven't been saying right which is being 55 and having a net worth that's less than your annual take-home income. Like that's probably more normal than not, which is really, honestly, it's really sad. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and all this stuff has to be boiled down to what you actually need. Yeah. Right. Like none yeah. of what you're, what, none of what we're saying is like, oh yeah, everybody who contributes to their 401k is going to become wealthy. It's like, no, that might not be the best path to wealth for you. Yeah. You know, totally. so keep that in mind too, that it actually has to be tailored to yourself. Yes. And on that note, actually, so uh, these surveys come out a couple times a year. So there was a recent survey, um, I believe Schwab did it, and they asked people on their platform, what, like, how much money do you need to, to be wealthy? And the answer was 2.2 million. So just if you're wondering what, like, what other people think wealthy is, it's 2.2 million. But the respondents also said, like, wealth is, it's, it's not worrying about money. Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's mm-hmm. how they described it. So they gave a number, and then they said, well, what is that? And the what is that is, well, you just don't have a worry. Right. Yeah. Right. Which that number could be 2.2 million, or it could be 1.5, or it could be yeah. 5.9. <laughs> yeah. Like, or 200. Or 200, right. Yeah. You know? Totally. Right. So, and, and like, you can be 35 and have a $100,000 net worth and be wealthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if that's just what you need. If that's what you need, if you're on the trajectory, you mm-hmm. know, to, to be getting there, um, like, that is, and that's so important, right? Yeah, yep. And that's so important. And this is where, um, again, like, you know, 
like an average financial life of a 35 year old is going to look different or above average um, financial life for a 35 is going to be way different than yep. above average for the 55. Yep. Um, like you can't compare apples to apples. And, um, but with that being said, like once you hit that above average, once you're hitting the strides, like just be content and be happy. Yeah. Yep. And there's another great, great stat on that, which I, I don't know the updated one. So this is probably actually several years old at this point, but, um, previously the statistic on like money and ha- or income and happiness as well is very similar to that where there's, um, the, the, there's diminishing returns that occurred after an individual made about $70,000 every year. Yeah. Like they, they could make 70,000 and be happy and be content and feel less stressed. You know, it came back to that point of the, the what it's like, well, how much do you want to make every year? $500,000. Well, why do you want to make that? So I'm not stressed. Okay. Well, some of the studies were showing about $70,000 was the point at which people started saying, I'm happy. I'm content. I'm not as worried on a year to year basis. Um, so, I mean, it's reflective both in net worth as well as income. And if someone has the updated stats on that, I mean, shoot us an email, let me know. Totally. But, yeah. Anyways. Because it's not the income that makes you happy. Exactly. Right. And yeah. it's because you end up throwing too many dollars at unsolvable problems. Yes. <laughs> Which great segue, Jacob. Perfect segue. This is really interesting. Um, we're going to post this up. This was um, uh, Maddie Burton. Uh, she's a CFP. I don't know what firm she works at. Um, she wrote this on Substack. Again, a uh, link in the description. I thought this was awesome. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. So the, art, the, the Substack is throwing, it's, it's called Five Year Plan and throwing money at unsolvable problems. This is so great. So there's basically th- like three different areas that um, money can, you can buy your way out of. So um, th- if you can imagine this uh, in your mind, so there's the x-axis is money spent on solutions and then peace of mind. So with relatively little money, you can buy yourself out of some areas in which you are stressed and people become stressed. Usually it's a time issue. Yeah. And the example she gives is like, oh, you don't want to mow your yard, hire the neighbor kid to do it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Lawn work, housekeeping, you know, or house cleaning. Yes. Stuff yep. like that. Like right, if, yeah. this is like relatively basic stuff. Right? Grocery delivery. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Like where you spend a little bit of money to um, basically, she calls it the zone of relief. But then after that, there's this like area where like your money becomes like you can't really buy yourself out of this situation because um, it's just a laws of diminishing return. And I'm actually going to uh, read this because I thought this was interesting. Okay. So her example of where this just falls flat and Dan, I think this like totally coincides with what you just said on the income thing. So you're like, well, I'm going to get a meal kit service to replace. And again, living proof, Camille and I, we've been there, done that. And we did, we did, um, meal delivery kits way longer than the average person. We did blue apron for like nine months or a year. Most people do it for like a month and they're like, this sucks. We actually like try to do it. So this is like what the zone of disappointment, and this is just like the laws of diminishing returns. So you have to set a reminder to pick each wheels meant each week's menu before the deadline. Then you need to make sure that you retrieve the box particularly in the summertime before everything melts in it and your food for the week is gone. Then you need to learn how to uh, cook the new meals, which 
is kind of challenging. And then you need to remember to skip deliveries and change your address when traveling. And then you need to totally be okay with the meals that you don't cook. So again, like you can like buy yourself out of cooking, but then in this case, she's like, okay, this is actually, this is like a lot of work. It creates more problems. It creates more problems. There's like more things in your head that you need to be thinking through. And what she wrote, and this literally happened in Camila's life. It also happened to me. I did HelloFresh and it was terrible. I did it for like six months. It's like, even if you can afford it, it's just like, it's the, the hassle isn't worth it. So she said, and this is again, what happened to Jacob and I, you just like simply grab some food that you know you can make like 10 different predefined meals. Yep. Yep. Totally. Literally. <laughs> so yeah. You can still have Instacart, but like going above and beyond. And, and you can start doing this anywhere, right? Where it's like, this doesn't really make sense. And then she talked about like, like the, the way around this and, and to show you guys like how complicated some of these like really, really rich people are, like they need to have multiple layers of people, of staff. It's like, well, if you want to cook, if you want to have a personal um, trainer, a masseuse, like all these, I mean, some of these wealthy people have insane lifestyles. Yeah. But then when you think about traveling with all these people on, like you need to pay for their airfare, like you need to have multiple layers of people just like managing all of your people. Yeah, you're the personal CEO right. with tons of managers below you to actually take the stress off of your mind. <laughs> right. Like that's what it boils down to is you have to pay somebody else to manage the crap that you would have to manage yourself. And right. you have to be comfortable with them making decisions for you. Right. And yes. That's, and that's what she refers to as the Beyonce zone. Yeah. Right. It's it's you're at such a level, uh, kind of like the Michael Jordan example. I love how much these articles have honestly tied into each other today without in some sense even realizing it. But it's like Beyonce's own. Beyonce's just going to be Beyonce. She's going to do her thing. She's going to go. She's going to play music. She's going to get sponsorships. And Beyonce's going to do whatever other things Beyonce does. Uh, but she has the income to literally pay salaries for chefs, personal assistants, uh, you know, house service, uh, probably on multiple properties, I'm assuming. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, that is just, that's a whole nother world. But imagine the complexities there, right? Oh, yeah. Um, I, and I think, when you guys were talking, I think this is how I would summarize this chart. It's like, beware of spending money uh, and uh, beware of using cash that's buying you into more problems. Yes. Right? Beware of spending yes. cash and buying yourself into more problems, <laughs> not out of problems. There's, uh, I was thinking about this over the weekend. Like some companies create problems and then they offer a solution. Apple, right? Or, that's I, I saw that uh, something similar and it was describing Apple like AirPods and like Apple stuff like that. Yeah, and so Apple's good. Like AirPods are good, but like um, like HelloFresh, for example, or Blue Apron, like you think you're solving a problem, but like it's actually creating a lot more work in your, in your life. And that's where, uh, again, you guys should, um, we're going to link this down. Like you want to avoid the zone of, of disappointment because- Everywhere you look on the internet, if you want, if you start reading about success, it's like successful people find leverage. But, but, like you just need to be real about it. Again, like um, I think what we've discussed already, right, is like we can afford HelloFresh, like we can afford that stuff. But there weren't incremental gains. Like it's mm-hmm. it's been easier for us to just cook. Yeah, and yes, we still use find leverage on Instacart, for example. But like those other, like to your point, Dan, like those other services 
there's just more work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so bl- bl- blast this off, like bullet point this, maybe the, the, the three of us. What's the decision-making framework you use to decide what is a solvable problem and what is an unsolvable problem or a problem that is actually going to buy yourself into more problems? How do you make those decisions? Um, so I think I've, I would say we, tr- like Camille and I, like we try, like we've hired a lot of different people to solve different problems. Um, one of them, like last year, like I had somebody mow my lawn for me and I didn't like the product. And it like, this, I spent a lot of time on working on my lawn and this, uh, this gal that I was mowing it, I was like, I don't like that. <laughs> So like sure. we tried to solve stress by having somebody mow the lawn last year, but then the, the end result, like the product of what, of that you know, farming out, like it wasn't to my standards. I didn't like it. And then, so we just, we took that, we took that back. I was like, okay, yeah. I'll exchange 45 minutes of my time because I didn't like what that other. So I think Camila and I, like we've, we've been willing to try things. Like we went, we've been willing to spend money on things to, um, I think to find more leverage, but then at that point, then we understand like, okay, that wasn't worth it. Or like we value our, uh, we we value doing it ourselves for X, Y, Z reasons. Yep. So. Yep. Good. I don't exactly think I have a lot of problems that need to be solved. My life is just not that complicated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I can't even think of a single service that I really farm out to solve a problem. I mean, there's some like software stuff or whatever, but yeah. like, I mean, yeah, yeah, peanuts. Yeah. I feel like it's just trial and error for me. Kind of goes back to Tom's thing. And I've probably had my fair share of somewhat complicated problems. I mean, I even in my head, I'm thinking electrical and plumbing. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Where I think a lot of times it's like, hey, I'm going to get my hands dirty for 20 minutes. And after 20 minutes, if I'm like, this is, there's no way, like, or this is just not going to be a good long term solution. That's where I'll start to farm it out. But totally, yeah, it's hard to know. I, I literally, like you said, I guess uh, I think you said this earlier. It's like it's better to do, you know, better to do than to sort of say you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I highly encourage everybody not to work on their own electrical. Work. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, don't get your hands too dirty. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's it's easy to do, but all right, um, never mind. Don't don't follow my advice because I the plumbing did some electrical. You can't really hurt yourself too bad plumbing. You know, electricity you can only flood your basement. That's not that bad, you know. Well, that's bad, <laughs> but at least you're not dead. Ooh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm way rather do electrical than plumbing. All right, we are. Um, we're gonna wrap it up here. So you, I mean, we might as well just say the quote of the week. Oh, whoops! It's a sentence. <laughs> oh, this is um from our good friend Jay Powell. Yeah. Because that happened last I Wednesday, would, everybody. I would, yes, that's true. I would almost say that the conditions that we need to see in place to get inflation down are coming into place. There we go. He also opened up to the opportunity that uh, he, he and that we had another article linked here by Kyla Scanlon, and he basically gave the Federal Reserve the optionality. He said that they're yep. skipping, they're skipping rates. They're not going to hike them. But he said might need to do it later. Yeah, I mean, he just basically just gave himself the option. That's a hot. That's a hot take on uh, on inflation, and the market pretty much yawned. So, yep. Um, all Big right, we're gone. gonna wrap it up. So, episode thirty eight in the books. So, to wrap this up, just choose to be average, like in a lot of areas. But then, uh, for those areas that you really actually care about, you know, just seek to be far above average, and particularly with your money. So, if you guys have any questions, uh, shoot us an email. 
Um, and like usual, we'll see you next week on the Lime and Money Podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. Tom, Jacob, Dan, and Noah are registered representatives of Sanctuary Securities and investment advisor representatives of Sanctuary Advisors. Bill Capital is a DBA of Sanctuary Securities and Sanctuary Advisors.